Leviticus 14, beginning in verse 1. You know, Jim got up and was talking about wanting to fill your cup and, and knowing that there were those of you here who really this morning needed a blessing. I, did you feel blessed just singing I'll Fly Away? It's been great to sing a song where we talk about where we're going and what's going to happen. I don't know if you caught it, but we changed a little line in there. It's not when I die, hallelujah, and by and by, even if I die, because I'm not planning on dying. That's not at least my personal plan. Now, I may, and if I do, cool. I'm still by and by going to fly. But I'm not planning on it. Even if I die, I'm going to fly. I would much rather just lift right off. How about you? Yeah. That'd be great. This morning, the top of the barn just goes and explodes, and off we go. That, that's where I'm at, right there. I was listening to John Corson uh, on the radio this last week, and he was talking about how he has a 19, I believe, 69 Beetle. Is that right? A little bug, but it's a convertible. A convertible, and he gave this message when he was living down in California in the last couple of years, and was just enjoying living down there so much because he just kept the top down all the time. Now, if you know anything about Pastor John Corson, he did 25 years plus of ministry in Oregon, so there wasn't a whole lot of letting the top down on the Beetle. But he was talking about how the top is down all the time, 24/7. He's just driving, you know, the California freeways with, you know, his hair blowing in the wind and, and just loving it, just loving it. And he said, "And I want you all to know that I drive a car that is rapture ready." <laughs> well, the rest of you are bumping your heads on the roof of your car. I'm going straight up. I'm going to beat you there. And I thought that was great. Rapture ready. So I'm going to go have the roof of my car removed. Leviticus chapter 14, beginning in verse one. What does that have to do with leprosy, which is what we're going to look at this morning a lot more than you might think. Leviticus chapter 14 verse 1 Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp thus the priest shall look and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper then the priest shall give orders now listen to this to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He then shall sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. How bizarre! How strange is that? Such a departure. If you read through Leviticus and look at the offerings, the sacrifices, this is totally unique. Most of the sacrifices happen inside the tabernacle, at the altar, that brazen altar of sacrifice. This happens outside, not only of the tabernacle, but outside of the camp. This offering has some very strange things, you know, killing a bird over running water and these different emblems in it. It's just strange to look at. It's a little bizarre. Wednesday night, we read through these verses, and, and I asked the question, what does this mean? And, and as people were waiting with bated breath to know what this means, I said, we'll talk about it on Sunday. <laughs> because everybody needs to hear this. These seven verses are a message of amazing, incredible hope. But before we get there, a couple of things you need to understand about leprosy. If you haven't been tracking these things recently, 
A couple of things, and if you're taking notes, jot these down. The first is that leprosy reveals the grotesque ugliness of sin. Of all the examples or pictures in the Bible, leprosy is the most graphic as a portrayal of sin. As a picture of sin and uncleanness. It begins subtly, but it always ends hideously. It starts with little swellings, or scabs, or bright spots in the skin. Little discomforts. But ultimately the disease progresses until the fingers and toes begin to rot and fall off. Hands and feet become stumps. A nose will disappear into a withdrawing face. Eyes dry up, teeth recede up into the gums, or simply fall out. Pus oozes incessantly. It's a graphic, horrible disease. And it is a picture of sin. For just as leprosy begins subtly and ends hideously, sin begins subtly. No one jumps right off the cliff and says, I want to be a brazen sinner. I want to be the most blatant drug addict I can possibly be. I want to be known as the person who has slept with more people outside of marriage than anybody who's ever lived. That's my goal for life. Now, people may say that or be quote-unquote sickly proud of that after the fact, but no one starts out saying, I want to be really messed up. Sin starts subtly. A bright spot, a swelling, a little scab on the skin. But James 1.15 tells us, When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, full-blown, brings forth death. That is the ultimate end of sin. Always has been, always will be. Leprosy does something else. It doesn't just begin subtly. As it reveals this grotesque ugliness of sin, it also numbs the senses. Leprosy numbs the senses. Part of the problem with leprosy is the leper will sprain an ankle and not even know they did it. And have this problem in their ankle and where you and I, if we sprain an ankle, we're going to walk real carefully on that ankle. We'll be cautious with it. A leper wouldn't even know it was sprained. It would continue to walk on it and drive that pain, that strain, worse and worse. And break a finger. You and I are very careful with it. A leper doesn't even know it's broken. There's no senses. It's all numbed. And that's exactly what sin does in our lives. It numbs our sensitivity to spiritual things. We get to where we can't even see or understand or know spiritual things. It's part of the problem of biblical illiteracy in the church. Biblical illiteracy gang is tantamount to numbness. There are too many Christians sitting in churches this morning who have no idea what this book really says. No clue. Hearing pop psychology messages from time to time from a pastor who's doing his best to try and keep up with things and nothing that is deep down into the Word that's feeding the soul, that's keeping us sensitive to spiritual things. No, instead, we're just going to float along the surface and we become spiritually numb. It absolutely amazes me how large a number of Christians, when asked, really don't know how Jesus is coming again. Really don't know what the future holds for them in Christ. Really don't know what that looks like biblically. How few have actually taken the time to study it, to read through it. How many people will look at books like Revelation and say, I'm not touching that one with a ten foot pole. Well, you know we're touching it every Sunday night. We just started last week. If you haven't joined us, you're welcome to. It's a blast. But more than fun, it is critically important that we as believers know what this book says so that we're not spiritually numb. 
there are surprisingly number, a surprisingly great number of different philosophies and teachings and theologies out there to explain what happens when Jesus comes, or even before that, when we die, what happens when we die. So many different ideas that run through people's heads, and yet the Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, said clearly, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. A Christian person, understanding what the Word of God truly says about death, dying, and life after death, is not worried about these things. Shouldn't be. And so if you are, I I submit to you, you need to spend some time seeing what the Word says because it's really encouraging. It's awesome. It's incredibly hopeful. It's a blessing to us. What does all this have to do with the leprosy law? Again, more than you might think, but we'll get back to it. Now, in response to leprosy, God gave the Israelites a leprosy law. Leviticus 13 and 14 is all a law for the cleansing of a leper. But the second thing to know, first is that leprosy reveals sin, the grotesque ugliness of sin. Secondly, the leprosy law requires healing. It requires healing. What do you mean? Well, Leviticus 14.3, last part of the verse says, The priest shall look, and if the infection of the leprosy has been healed in the leper, then he will offer cleansing to the leper. In other words, these two chapters are not about how to cleanse, or not how to heal a leper, they're how to cleanse a leper. What's the difference? Healing is the physical, cleansing is the spiritual. After the healing has taken place, God is focusing here on cleansing the leper, which is different than healing. And it's important that you note that. Only a healed leper need apply. If you're not healed of leprosy, you cannot be cleansed of leprosy. And that's what God is teaching. But what's interesting here is that as we've studied on Wednesday night, for the past, or for 1,500 years from when this law was given, for 1,500 years this law was obsolete. Even from the first day it was given, it was not useful or usable. It was irrelevant to the Jewish people. Why? Because in 1,500 years not a single Jewish leper was healed. At least not in the biblical record. We don't have a single account in the Bible of a Jewish person being healed of leprosy so that he could avail himself of the leprosy law of cleansing. When you read that, you think, well, that's interesting. Why would God do that? Well, it wasn't until a Jew came on the scene named Yeshua, Jesus, that suddenly this law was put into effect. The leprosy law, number three, was realized in Jesus. In Jesus. He's the one who came along. And listen to him describe his own ministry. Luke 7.22 The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. Why were the lepers cleansed? Because Jesus was out there healing them right and left. Suddenly lepers are showing up in the synagogue, in the temple. They're coming to the priest and going, Hey, I had leprosy, but I'm clean, or I'm healed now, and I need to be cleansed. And the priests are going, Haven't read that law in a while. Hang on a second. Let's check this out. Guys, get out the scroll. What do we do with the leper? He's been healed. How do we cleanse him? We haven't studied that in so long. When was the last time a leper was healed? Never! Jesus is healing people, sending them to the priest, and the priests now have to figure out this cleansing, and they go right back to Leviticus 13 and 14. Okay, here's how we do it. We need a couple of birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet string, and hyssop, and, and they go about the act of cleansing. The leprosy law realized in Jesus. But gang, in these first seven verses of Leviticus 14, not only do we learn that the leprosy law was realized in Jesus, it also remains in Jesus today. And Father, we ask that you give us great insight into these words. That over these few verses, as we look at them this morning, 
You'll open wide our eyes and deepen our sensitivity. If we are numb in any way, shape, or form, Father, I pray that you would tear off the numbness. Even, Father, if it hurts or is uncomfortable. And I pray that you will let your word rule and reign over us. That we will listen to your word. That we will seek the every little nuance in your word to understand what you have prepared. What no eye has seen and no ear has heard. Oh Lord, the things that you have prepared for those who love you. So Holy Spirit, make the book live to us. And let us live to the book. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's look at this. Verse 2 says, This shall be the law of the leper. In the day of his cleansing, now he shall be brought to the priest. Actually, and here's a, a shift. And the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the leper, uh, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders. First thing to jot down about how this applies today. Jesus, Jesus is the priest who finds me. He's the priest who finds me. I was probably five years old at the time and some little friends of mine were over playing at the house and we were playing in the front yard and a little friend from one house up was down playing in our house as well and we all decided to go see if we could find our preschool and so we left the safe front yard of our house my mom was inside doing you know housework and stuff keeping the eye the proverbial eye on the children but the children were a little antsy that day and so we headed down Saddleback Drive the street on which I grew up we got down to the bottom of Saddleback and we just took a left on Mascaro, headed on out Mascaro until we got to Crescenta and took a ride on Crescenta. And we got down, I forget the name of the street there, and Cheryl probably remembers, but what was the name of that next intersection? Not really important to the story. So we took a right. <laughs> but we're walking along and we're just having a grand old time. This was back in the days when kids could just, whoop, just go off and do whatever. Now it's like, you know, we've got to keep them close, keep within our eyesight there. We got to the preschool. Miraculously, amazing. I know the Lord was going, turn right, turn right, turn right, go left, go left, don't go that way. And there's a child molester who lives there, don't go that way, head this way. So, and we're just all the way, we ended up in this preschool, and, and then we got there and realized we had no idea how we got there or how to get home. And so we sat down, and the three or four of us just started to cry. That's all we did. I'm scared, I'm never going to see my parents again. You know, when you're that age and you're that far away from home, you have no clue where you know, You figure you're in Africa now, and they're never going to find you. And my parents got in the car after they realized I was gone. My dad got home from work. So this is like, we've been gone two, three hours. The other family came home with my little friend who lived next door. That, by the way, was the last time he was allowed to play with me. And they're all out driving around in the cars, and I'll never forget this. I mean, it's burned in my memory, sitting there on that little wall in front of the Lutheran Church, which was where the preschool was in Mission Viejo, California. And here comes the family station wagon. It was a blue Toyota station wagon. It looked like a shoebox. And it came rolling up the street into the driveway. And the door opened and my dad stepped out. And I knew I had been found. Dad found me. He found me. He had no idea that's where I was. But they were just looking and looking. And he found me. And that's what the priest did. So amazing in this leprosy law. The leper, once you contracted leprosy, you were out of the camp. You lived outside of the camp of Israel. You were unclean. You were not even able to avail yourself of the temple worship, of the tabernacle worship. You're separated. You're cut off, just like sin does. Cut off from the Father. Outside of the camp. But Jesus is the priest who finds me. 
We know throughout the Bible, Jesus is often referred to as the priest. Hebrews 3 verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so the priest is told here in the first couple of verses of Leviticus 14, go outside the camp. It's the one offering that happens outside the tabernacle, outside the camp. God says, priest, you go where the leper is. You go to where the healed leper is. You find him. Because remember, the leper can't even come into the camp to talk to the priest to seek the cleansing. He can maybe call over the wall or call to someone, Hey, send the priest. We've got a healed guy over here. Again, didn't happen for 1,500 years. But the law was, the priest shall go outside the camp. Very interesting that Jesus died outside the camp. The crucifixion didn't play, take place in Jerusalem. It took place outside of the city. That's where the crucifixion happened. The priest outside the camp. Jesus is the priest who finds me. Who finds me. Listen, if you feel lost in your life, if you feel like you're an outsider or you're alone or if your life right now is just rotten, rotten like leprosy, Jesus meets you where you are. He finds you. How critical a thing this is to understand. And again, how lost often it is, even in Christianity, as we try to clean ourselves up, prepare ourselves, make us look just so that Jesus will invite us to come into the camp where we can find healing. And the Lord says, no, I will meet you outside of the camp. I'm going to find you in the worst of the worst, in your big mess. Ephesians 2.5, listen to this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, I say that again. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Isn't that wonderful news? That means that right now, if there's someone sitting in here this morning going, I don't even believe I'm here, I shouldn't even be here. Yes, you should. Because Jesus finds you. He comes to you where you are, just as you are, and He does the changing. He does the cleansing. You just lay it out before him. I'm a leper and I need healing. I need cleansing. And he takes care of the rest. Jesus is the priest who finds me. But also, also Jesus is the prophecy fulfilled. The prophecy fulfilled. What prophecy? Let me remind you one more time that God's actions are never random. God is always intentional in the things he does. And so in laying out this law for the leper... We might read it from a human perspective and go, well, that's creative. <laughs> that's unique. That's interesting. He must just want to make sure that the leper knows how filthy he really was. That's not what's going on at all. God was writing prophecy. Oh, Rick, you're always into that prophecy stuff. Hey, don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. This whole thing is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And after you look at this, there's no way again you could possibly miss it. The leprosy law is the gospel of Jesus. Look at it, verse 4 and 5. The priest then shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. Look at these emblems. Look at these pictures. Two birds. Two birds. The Hebrew word is sapor. Sapor. That was, by the way, Moses' wife, Sipporah. Her name meant little bird, and that's what Sipporah is, a little bird, a little hopping bird, to be exact. You were supposed to take two little hopping birds. Now, in some of the other sacrifices, you take a couple of turtle doves, or maybe some pigeons. That's not what these birds were. They were little hopping birds, sparrows, little sparrows. 
And these little sparrows were taken by the priests. Why two little sparrows? Because they remind us, and hang with me on this, they remind us of the insignificance of Jesus. Now that's a little difficult to even say because we immediately think, wait, don't you mean the glory of Jesus, the grandeur of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus? No, I mean His insignificance. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So God knows, but a sparrow, they're a dime a dozen. They're two cents for two. I mean, you can, you can get them in the market for that, Jesus says. But the insignificant sparrow points us toward the insignificance of Jesus. Now again, you and I know him as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Risen One, the Glorious Lord. But he was born a baby. This God of all the heavens put on human flesh and became for us insignificant, like a little bird. For 30 years of his life, who knew he was even there? His mom knew. And for 30 years, you wonder, did Mary look at Jesus from time to time and just think, what was that whole birth thing about? Because he's so human. He's just kind of like us. He's a kid and he gets lost. You know, he did when he was 12. Well, he wasn't lost. His parents were lost trying to find him. He was in the temple. So that was a little odd. But Mary must have been the only one even wondering. Jesus lived this life 30 years of obscurity on earth. Insignificant until he entered into ministry. In Philippians 2 verse 7. Paul said Jesus emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Of course, then in his death, he was buried in a borrowed grave. It wasn't even his own. Insignificant. Of course, what's great about something that you borrow is it has to be given back. He was buried in a borrowed grave, but he didn't need it for long. The Bible also says in Philippians verse, chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two little birds, two little hopping birds, two sparrows. Insignificant. Jesus became put on insignificance to do the most significant thing that would ever be done in history and that's die for the salvation of your soul and mine. But there's more here that's fascinating. We see three other little emblems, cedar wood, a scarlet string, and hyssop. Apparently what the priest would do is he would take a stick of cedar and using the scarlet string he would wrap hyssop around to the top of it and this then could be dipped in and soaked in the blood of one of the little birds that was killed and it points us directly, directly to the cross of Christ. The cedar wood, wood in the Bible, a a picture, it makes you think, hey the cross was of wood and the cedar speaks of the cross, the scarlet string speaks of the blood the blood of sacrifice. Some of you may have heard this or studied this or seen this before. There's a scarlet thread that runs from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. It finds its culmination in Christ. A scarlet string. Just look it up. We don't have time to do it this morning. But do your own little word study. Look up the word scarlet in Scripture and track where it shows up in the stories. And look at how many times, how often it points specifically to the blood. The blood of sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. This last week, Cheryl and I were watching the show House. Anyone watch House? Man, that's a cool show. And it's an edge of your seat. You know, there's this physician, Dr. House, and he's incredibly uh, sarcastic. 
and through the whole thing, they, they always are trying to figure out this, this illness and, and what's really going on so they can find a solution for it. And this last week, they had a little girl on the show. She had cancer. She's dying of cancer. She has maybe weeks, months left to live. And they bring her in, and there are some problems going on in her body that's causing her just to kind of space out and, and forget things and, and have strange dreams, and she's just in, in bad shape. And through the whole show, they're trying to figure out what goes on. At the end of it, House realizes the only way they can take care of the problem, the only way they can find, there's a, there's a clot or a tumor somewhere, the only way to find it is in an autopsy. So they kill her. In the show, they basically they bring her body temperature down. They put cold water into her body, and in a state, they they basically cause cardiac arrest. And they have 60 seconds in which to find the thing and know where it is, and then bring her, revive her. It's TV, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but they do that. They they bring her down, and then part of the process. And listen to this, because this caught my eye. Part of the process was they had to remove her blood. They had to pump it out and then pump it back in to literally, quote-unquote, reboot her system. You see, we have to have our blood removed and rebooted with the pure, perfect blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. Because our, our, our blood is messy. Our blood is sinful. I mean, we got the sin nature game. We got sin in the blood. It runs in the families. It is in human nature. It's in the human family. But Jesus' blood is that cleansing blood that can flow into us and completely cleanse us of all things. The scarlet string. The scarlet string. Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A cedar that looks like the cross. This scarlet string speaking of the blood of sacrifice. Hyssop. Hyssop is interesting in the Bible. Hyssop, sponge-like in nature, tied up to this piece of, of cedar. Hyssop speaks not of the blood or of the cross, but of the application of the blood. What do you mean? Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. Moses, preparing for the Passover, told the people, You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts of the home. If you dip the hyssop in the blood and left it there, your house was not saved. The death angel would not have passed over, and the firstborn in the house would have died. You have to apply the blood. The blood was shed, the blood of sacrifice was shed by Jesus on the cross, but unless it's applied, it doesn't do anything for you. It's not just that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He did, but unless you apply the blood that was shed for you, it means nothing. John would later tell us the following. In John 19.29, Jesus is on the cross, and it says a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Hyssop is the blood applied. The scarlet string, that picture of blood. The cedar, the wood of the cross. Now, what about the earthen vessel? The earthen vessel. The first bird, first of the two little birds, was killed in an earthen vessel. And Jesus, Jesus could not have been killed for us had he not been in an earthen vessel. 
had He not put on an earth suit, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is it, listen. God was manifest in the flesh. The mystery of godliness, the wonder of Jesus, is God manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. But it keeps getting better. This earthen vessel, picture of the earthly body of Christ. What about the running water? The running water, well, it's most easily understood in its Hebrew context. The Hebrew word is ka'i. Ka'i, literally living water. Now do you know what it resembles? Living water. Jesus said in John 7:38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit. So all of this, and it's amazing, it's so picturesque. It's such an incredible illustration. The bird is slain in an earthen vessel over running water. This picture of the Spirit of God. Listen to this. Though Jesus' body was killed, His Spirit did not die. Which is good news for us. Because Jesus is the model for us. He's the one who goes before us. His body was killed. His body for three days was in the tomb. What was His Spirit doing? His Spirit was pretty busy. Doing some interesting and amazing things. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What? What? In those three days when Jesus was in the tomb, he wasn't just having a little nap? No. His spirit was at work, proclaiming, speaking to, preaching to spirits who were disobedient. Oh, Rick, that's that's outlandish. That's bizarre. It's biblical. I didn't make that one up. What does it mean that he was preaching to disobedient spirits? Well, we'll have to talk about that another time. I know it's confusing. I know it's confusing, but just know this. That when Jesus' body was dead, his spirit was alive, even in that three-day period between his death and his resurrection. Remember that. Now let's sum up this prophetic picture. Jesus' body is the earthen vessel. His crucifixion seen in the hyssop, the cedar, his blood in the scarlet. His death in the sacrifice of the first little bird. And Jesus' spirit portrayed by the running or living, ka'i, the living water. But it gets better. Watch this, verse 6. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean. Listen, the healed leper, the leper who already was healed, remember you've got to be healed before you can be cleansed. As happened when Jesus came. He would heal lepers and then send them off to the priest for their ceremonial cleansing. So the healed leper gets sprinkled seven times by the blood. Seven times. We see that number over and over and over in Scripture. It's the number of completion in the Bible. And what it tells us is the leper at that point could realize, I am completely clean. I'm not just healed. I'm welcomed back into the fellowship, into the camp, into the family. I'm clean from head to toe. I don't have to walk around calling out unclean, unclean anymore. I don't have to cling to that old old uncleanliness. I don't have to spend my life looking back at all of the stuff that I had to deal with when I was a leper or, in our case, a sinner. 
But I can know that I am clean. And Colossians 2.10 tells us, In Christ you have been made complete. How many times in pastoral setting I've counseled someone who just couldn't get over sin from ten years ago. In Christ you are clean. If you've given yourself to Christ, walk away from the past and stop wallowing in it. And to wallow in past sin is like a leper walking around who's been healed, cleansed, looking good, dressed nice, walking among the people and still calling out, Unclean! Unclean! Woe is me, I'm still unclean. No, you're not. In, in more spiritual language, get over it. <laughs> Move on in your salvation and in the joy of your cleanliness. You have been completely clean. Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14 tells us something else amazing about Jesus. When he ascended up to heaven, he bore the blood of our cleansing with him. He presented that blood in heaven. Just like the little live bird is dipped in the blood and then set free to fly and there's blood on his wings. And he bears the blood up. Jesus bore the blood up before the Father to make atonement for our souls. But this is not only the prophecy of Christ's death and his resurrection and his ascension. This prophecy matters equally. It's equally important to my and your future. Our future. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 tells us, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. This is the big one. This is the big deal. Pay close attention. First importance, what I already received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I add, just like the little dead sparrow. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, just like the little live sparrow. You see, there's no animal that in sacrifice could portray death and resurrection. So God says, we're going to take a couple of birds here. One's going to die, picture of his death. One's going to live, picture of his resurrection. But keep in mind, this leprosy law, this law was written 1,500 years before Jesus walked on the face of the earth. And it states both practically and prophetically, the only way for a leper to be cleansed is by the blood. But that's still not the best part. This is the best part. Tune in. The last sentence of verse 7 literally flew off the page to me as I read it this week. Let the live bird go free over the open field. Let him go free over the open field. Let him fly. I'll fly away. Jesus is the priest who finds me. He's the prophecy fulfilled, but Jesus, folks, Jesus is preparing me to fly. He's preparing me to fly. He's not the only live bird that gets to ascend. You do too. And so do I. Jesus said in John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Even if I die. And he says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He's talking about two kinds of people there. Those who who believe in him and then die are going to live again. Also those who believe in him but somehow never die. Well, who's that? It's anyone who is alive at the time that he calls us home. Anyone who, who just happens to be in that, in that wonderful place, walking down the street one day and you hear, Come up here! And boom, you go! You're pulled out. You're taken up. I'm not sure I buy that, Rick. I'm not sure I believe that take on Scripture. Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for just a moment. 
1 Thessalonians telling the worship team this morning we were talking about I said you know the hard thing about teaching some of the things that are in the Bible is we have so much tradition we have so much in our lives that has been hammered in and, and that we've heard and that we just kind of assume there are things that I assumed as a kid growing up that I was never even taught but in the church setting that I was in I kind of just assumed so let's take assumptions for a moment Set them aside and let the Bible speak and listen closely and clearly to it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Paul says again, we do not want you to be uninformed. Good. That's, that's a good opening sentence. That means pay attention. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, watch this, I have this underlined, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Think about that. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or specifically died. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. The phrase caught up is harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin. It's where we get the word rapture. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. I'm going to fly. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Now listen, a couple things you've got to know. Because there seems to be a contradiction here. But Paul is very clear in the teaching if we will pay attention to his clarity. Verse 13 tells us, verse 13, sorry, verse 14, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So if God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, where are people who have died in Christ? With him. With him. Let's put to rest the whole idea of soul sleep. Well, when you die, you just kind of, you know, you you rest in that box or wherever for a long time until Jesus finally comes around. No, 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 no. You are with him. Paul says it very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. My grandmother lived 94 years in Christ. Well, okay, like 90 years. <laughs> Most of her life. I, I was thinking about her the other day. Cheryl, I, I was just thinking about Irene. I love my grandma Irene. She was such a precious soul. And she walked. The fruit of the Spirit just hung all over her. And when she died, I remember we went into her, her room and there on the, the bed table beside her room was a Bible. It was a little red, hardback, one-year Bible. See, our whole family got them like ten years before. I made it through the first year. I actually read through the Bible in one year. Very proud of myself. Way to go, Rick. Never did it again in that ten-year period. She had read through it every year for ten years. Just It was worn and crusty, and I thought, wow, what, what, a, what an amazing woman. Has she been asleep since 1999? Absolutely not. She's with the Lord right now. Where's her body? Where's her body? 
Well, you don't know. You don't know where she was buried. It's in a grave right now. If we were to go right now and exhume her body, not to be gross, but if we were going to do that, we would open up a coffin and there it would be. The body's in the tomb. But Paul says that God is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the Spirit is with the Lord. The Spirit is with the Lord, which sheds some light on verse 16. Look at verse 16. The Lord will descend with a, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Wait a minute. Time out. The Spirit is going to bring with He's bringing the people who died with Him. But this says the dead will rise. Let me make it a little more clear for you. The word dead there in the Greek is nekros. Literally, the corpses will rise. This is going to be a funky day. But you know what's going to happen in that moment? This this is just amazing stuff. God is not through with your body yet. Your body, if you happen to die, your body that is buried or cremated or whatever, you know, it's not a problem for God. He knows where all the molecules are. He'll just scoop you up and you know put you back together. Not a problem. If the whole box thing freaks you out, as it does my mother-in-law, we'll figure you out, okay? But the Bible is clear here. The dead, the necros, the corpse, the body will rise. The spirit will come back with the Lord. And in that moment, there will be a glorification process. That is instantaneous. Now this may run against something you've been taught or or understand in the past. Listen again to what the Bible says. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And the dead in Christ will rise. Both things happen at once. Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. How? Imperishable. And we will be changed. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Let me explain it to you even more clearly. What happened to Jesus when he resurrected? Was he a ghost? Was he a floaty, vague spirit? As he came into the room among the disciples and freaked them out, was he untouchable? Did, did Thomas go and put his hand to go into the holes in Jesus' hands or into the hole in his side? Did Thomas' hand go right through him and he go, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? They thought he was a ghost at first. But Jesus said, hey, you got some fish? <laughs> a little hungry. <laughs> and then on, on the, the shore of the sea, when Peter and, and John saw this man on the sea and, and they, they got another miraculous catch of fish and they said, it's Jesus. And they went over. What did they do? They ate. They touched him. He was tangible. But gang, don't miss this. He was glorified. His physical body was glorified. The perishable put on the imperishable. That's what happens to you and I when he comes. When he calls. When he says, hey, it's time. Come up here. You living people, off the ground you go. My physical body can't fly, but my glorified body can. And I'm going to be doing loop the loops and all over the place. I'll be with you in a minute, Lord. Woo! I mean, can you imagine how wonderful this is going to be? The body. The body. The perishable mortal body will be instantaneously changed into the imperishable and we, like little sparrows, are going to fly over the open field. We're going to go. 
from lepers decaying to the dust of the earth to sparrows lifting up over the fields to meet Jesus. Let me ask you, which one do you want? What sounds best to you? Still struggling with these verses? Read it again and again and again and ask the Lord to show you what His Word means. Because I'm telling you, this is not what I was raised believing. Well, this was generically, but what I just shared, way too specific. I grew up with a mentality that said, it's all going to just end and you'll go to heaven. That's it. And I go, but what's heaven? Better than here. (laughs) But see, I had been to Disneyland. (laughs) I had gone to the beach on sunny, warm, beautiful days. (laughs) No? I'd gone to the mountains and I had swam in springs of water that were cool and refreshing. I'd lived and seen things. Heaven's better? Gang, even heaven is described explicitly for us. We don't have to be in the dark. So, one last question, Rick. So what you're saying is that you would actually rather die than be here. Absolutely. You'd rather be lifted up than, than, than live you know, 30, 40 more? Absolutely. Selfishly, if it was just about me, man, take me now. Give me a heart attack before I walk out of the barn. Great for me because I will be with the Lord. And isn't that the point? Isn't that what we want? Now, kids, don't worry. We're not, you know, I'm not planning to go right now. But God wants His children home. He wants the lepers cleansed completely. And in this beautiful little picture of a bird rising up over the fields, we have a picture again of the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the rapture of the church. Father, thank You so much for giving us this amazing picture incredible to think of what you have planned for us what you plan to do with us it's not all vague and confusing and confounding and esoteric Father it's so real and I long for that day Father when I'm going to see Irene again how great will it be to see her fly To see the joy in her face. To talk to her about her experiences of being with you all these years. How wonderful it will be when all the tears and the chains and the pain and the scars and the wounds and disease of this world fall away beneath us. Ah, Jesus, come quickly. Because the best of the best of this world, it pales in comparison to what you tell us you have prepared for us. As we pray, if you have never accepted the Lord, this is the promise, the guarantee. If you'd like to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior this morning, if you'd like to step into that process of being prepared to fly, By the cleansing of Jesus' blood, all you've got to do is pray these simple words after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Lord, I confess my sin to you. And I need your cleansing, your forgiveness. I want to claim you as my Lord. 
and my Savior so that when you call out, I will go home to be with you forever. So I give my life to you. Take me, Father. Be with me as you please and be my Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.